Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have on the podcast our second guest ever, claiming Binghampton, Tennessee. Lecrae, how are you, man? What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Now, you are in, uh, are you in Atlanta today? I'm in Atlanta, yeah. Okay, right on. But for a time, you lived in Binghampton. I sure right? did. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, I was, I was visiting a buddy of mine who lives in Binghampton when um, your last album came out. And wow. so I felt like this is a perfect weekend to listen to this new album. Wow, that's crazy. That's yeah. wow. So I'm the now, second person you, from Binghampton, to be honest. Yeah, second. I mean, I'm not saying I, I don't like you as much. I'm just saying you're sure. the second person. Sure, it's okay. But it's all right. It's all right. All right, well, welcome to the show. Uh, Atlanta today. You've been living in Atlanta for a while, right. but you are repping Houston today I, yeah. on your chest. I was born in Houston, so that's my birth city. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Well, I live in Austin, so we can be uh, we can be friends. Right on. Right on. Right on. Okay, so you've got uh, you've got a new book. It's entitled "I Am Restored," and we're about uh, two months out from the release date of the book. And you have a great deal of vulnerability in the book. Do you have any like vulnerability hangover or second guessing as you're getting close to release day? <laughs> you know what, man? I'm a big believer that leaders lead in vulnerability. And once you tell on yourself, then there's there's nothing anybody else can say. So, you know, uh, there's freedom and confession and uh, suffering and suppression. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be free. You're good to go? Yeah. All right. <laughs> good to go. It's like, as someone who's, you know, listened to your music and appreciated your work over the years, it seemed like vulnerability has always been part of the work that you do and the art that you put into the world. So has that practice of, you know, leaders lead through vulnerability, has that always been there? Is this something you've grown into? Well, I, I had to grow into that, but I had some great leaders who who uh, demonstrated that early on for me. And um, and so it became a practice that, um, you know, I had to employ. But but over the last few years, um, I just realized there's a deeper level for for leaders that I think many of them don't get to because they have grown so accustomed to being on and being perfect that they don't get to that deeper, deeper level of honesty and vulnerability that brings about change. Yeah. Yeah. One of the issues for vulnerability with me is my oldest daughter is, she's in sixth grade now. And what does vulnerability look like when your kids can read your stuff and your kids can know what's going on in your life? How do you, how do you process that with them? And Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's some aspects of your life that are, um, you know, that they may not, need access to, um, for different reasons, but I think there will come a time where they'll need to know that you are flawed so that they can, um, believe in the, if as a Christian, I want them to believe in the power that I trust in. I want them to believe in the power of God. And so they've got to see that I'm a flawed person, that I don't have it all figured out and they can relate to me. So I'm not just a shot caller telling them what to do with their lives. I'm a, uh, a flawed person as well saying, trust me, I know what you're dealing with. I've been here. So, yeah. Well, you know, in, in the book, you, you share quite a bit of, you know, the, the flaws that many of us have and not just flaws that you have, but things that have happened to you that have created wounds and, you know, much respect for putting that out there. Cause I think 
what you're saying is, is spot on that the way that we can show people healing is through our wounds. And mm-hmm. so I, you know, much respect on that. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, one of those w- wounds that you talk about is, you know, what happened to you when uh, you were abused when you were uh, a kid. Mm-hmm. And you have an interesting line in the book where you say, uh, especially black men sharing abuse is difficult. Mm-hmm. And you describe that, and, and I can imagine for, for anyone who's experienced that, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think it's especially uh, hard and challenging for black men to share about abuse like that? Uh, <clears throat> well, there's a, there's a number of different uh, reasons I, I say that. I mean, one of them is uh, the cultural context. So depending on your whatever cultural context you come from, um, there are certain values and ideals that you have. And so where there may be some values and ideals in uh, a Hispanic community that may not carry over into the black community and vice, you know, vice versa. Um, I think within the black community, um, we carry this this sense of, you know, um, false masculinity that you've got to be tough. And if we, we may not have money. We may not have power, but we have our strength and we can beat you up and we're tough. And we, you know, and so um, it's all we have to cling on to. And and there's no time in a racist world to navigate emotions. We've got to figure life out. And I think that just gets passed on, um, you know, from generation to generation to where we just embrace this false sense of personhood where you, you know, have been objectified as a person. And so you continue kind of objectifying yourself and not allowing yourself to thrive as a dynamic human being, but just compartmentalizing or not even just suppressing a part of who you are. And I think that that becomes a problem. Yeah. I've got a buddy of mine who's a, uh, a pastor in LA and he, he likes to joke. He says, you know, all you white pastors are like in counseling. N- none of us go to counseling is what was his joke. And you know, like there, obviously each culture has, you know, different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, anytime you go through abuse, no matter what culture you're in, it's got to be extremely challenging. And one of the things that you talk about that makes dealing with the abuse that you suffered even more painful is the fact that you didn't have a dad who was in the equation to help with that and to kind of navigate through that. Mm. When you're going through dealing with abuse as a young man, dad isn't in the picture. Mm Does that just compound the sense of like, because I feel like from what I hear, there's a lot of shame that goes with abuse and then to not have a dad who can help you process that. It just multiplies that, I assume. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, not having a dad or any male figure who can process that with you, um, who, you know, I had an uncle who once said to me that he was abused as a kid. And that was the first time I I realized that I wasn't alone out here. Um, so, you know, and obviously I've experienced, uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, and all of those particular things were traumatic. Um, and then not having my father in my life is a different type of trauma. So the, the, the wonderful thing, I I think God is so gracious to shield children from fully understanding the whys of all the things going on around them. I don't think our brains would be able to handle it. So I did not have departments and categories for what was happening to me until I got much older. And then it, it, you know, it showed us ugly face. Yeah. One of the heartbreaking lines that you have in the book is you say that uh, everyone challenged, challenged my manhood, but no one would help me find it. Mm-hmm. And that's just heartbreaking. Uh, uh, you take this angle on um, the way to understand um, the evils of 
racism and fatherlessness. And let me just uh, read a quote that you have. You say, systemic dysfunction is in our society because systemic evil has been visited upon us. We must confront our past individually and societies must confront its past corporately. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the difference of individually confronting your past and societies confronting it corporately? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, you've got to recognize, um, especially Christians. Christians, you know, many of us uh, grow up understanding original sin and how Adam sinned and we all are sinners. And, and it's very individual. Uh, we don't understand um, the consequence of authority and that Adam's sin did not just affect Adam. There was a structural result of his disobedience that affected the entire world. And, and so it wasn't his intention. He wasn't trying to destroy humanity, uh, you know, by making his decision, but he, but he harmed humanity by making his decision. And so similarly, um, a parent can say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be an alcoholic and I'm only damaging my liver. Well, you're not just damaging your liver. You're also removing yourself from being an active parent in the lives of your children, which has a residual effect and continues to have a residual effect. And so as a society, um, some of the ills done to, uh, you know, keep people in, uh, specifically black people or people of color in certain places in society and not be able to experience this constitution that was created um, has some residual effects. And so yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that they, they think, you know, Oh, well, slavery ended and everything's fine. Well, yes, slavery ended. And then all of those people were displaced. They didn't have homes. They didn't have jobs. They didn't, they, they were just, they had to figure it out. And that creates problems that I don't think we, we process and recognize. And so those are some of those, those issues, uh, as a, as a whole. Yeah. So the, the section you're talking about fatherlessness, where it's, it's easy to say for, for some to say, well, you know, black community has a problem with fatherlessness. And I, I think you're, what, as I was reading, I was saying, you, you're making a great point that there's individual responsibilities that fathers need to take up for, but also there is something that as a society that we need to say, there are long-term consequences. There is residue for the slavery that has happened in our country. Sure. And I think there's, it's not either or, it's both and. Everyone has to step up and be part of the solution for this. Absolutely. You nailed it. Yeah. When you're talking about fatherlessness, that becomes kind of a thread in the book that that jumps into your experience being connected with uh, some of our more reformed Calvinist friends in Christianity. And you talk about as you jump into this this world that there was a craving for approval of men that led to your connection to this community. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's a natural thing for for everyone to want, no matter where you're coming from, that you want, especially if you're a guy, like you want older men to approve of you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like that's something for everyone, but the experience that you have as one of the, would it be fair to say one of the the few black voices in the Mm -hmm. reform community, right? And so here's a line. I'm going to be curious how well this, uh, (laughs) the uh, social media responds to this in two months. Um, But the line (laughs) you said this is, the oddity of a rapper spouting weighty theology was a minstrel show. Mm. 
over under uh, on a hundred tweets about that line. I'm going to take the over on that one. Um, as you, can you help us understand how that felt like a minstrel show at, in, in your experience? Yeah, it, it's and when I, a minstrel show would be, you know, like a circus act. Um, it was, it, it's it's akin to. Um, someone coming up to to a, a a young black man and saying wow you speak so well and and it's like well how how should i speak is there a different way that i should be able to speak and so for this rapper to be spouting off these theological frameworks was like a juggling bear to that community it was like how mm. wow we you know, and and I remember hearing a pastor, a pretty prominent uh, pastor in those circles, say to me, um, "I I didn't know you could speak." You know, when I when I, I spoke at a, uh, in a in between songs, I didn't know you could speak, and um, and I looked at him and I said, "What do you mean by that?" And he said, "Well, I just didn't expect you to be able to to like speak so well about these things," and uh, and you know, I I think. It was just, like I said, it was like the juggling bear. And f- for me, initially, I'm so insecure that I don't realize this. I'm just glad. I'm like, did you like it? It was good. You know, I'm so insecure. But over time, you your eyes begin to open and you're, and you're like, oh, I'm a, I'm a spectacle. I'm not um, a respected voice in some of these circles. I'm a spectacle. And, um, you know, that, that, that was troubling. How old were you when you started to realize, or you started to feel like you were a spectacle? Hmm. Uh, probably my late twenties, early thirties, you know, early thirties, late twenties. Yeah. I, I would feel, uh, I would feel taken advantage of if, if I was in your situation, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how, how did you feel as you have this realization that I'm being treated like a spectacle here? Um, unfortunately, you know, it was par for the course. You know, unfortunately, that was just my friends and I, my, my, my black friends and I, you know, it was kind of like that was just our role and we accepted it. You know, we were um, the black arm of these movements. We were the hip hop arm of these movements. We were, you know, brought in when to, in sometimes, in some senses to showcase, look, we're even reaching into these communities with these guys. Um, We were the affirmation that people, that these organizations and institutions were not in fact racist and did not have, and and were diverse, Um, but there weren't genuine relationships and interaction and integration. It was more so we were outsourced and we were, we were okay with it. I was okay with it. When I began to realize I was a spectacle at first, I was very suspicious. And, and, and of course it's, it's almost like finding out that you have some adoptive parents, you know, you're, you're like, man, why didn't they tell me? And you're trying to like, not hate them. You're trying to, why didn't you tell me? Like, you're just trying to process it all. And that's kind of how it felt was, was, was processing. Yeah. One of the lines you have in the book about that experience is you say, uh, they had the privilege of erasing my culture and using my skin. Mm. And 
I don't think that's just in the reform evangelical community. I feel like many people in Christianity have done that. And I think your, your story obviously is like a macro level version of what happens on a micro level in, in every church where you obviously have notoriety and a following because of you know, the music that connects to so many people. But in every church, no one wants to be a church that looks like we're racist. Now, whether we care more about looking like we're not racist or not being racist is another mm-hmm. subject, but right. we, we don't want to be all white people. And so we want to have, you know, representation of people of color on stage. And it's the same thing, just played on a smaller level where I, I want your skin. I want you to show us that we're not just white people on stage, but I'm not listening for what your culture is and the essence and the image of God that's unique in you. So I, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone and, and mocking it. You know, I'm not reform. And so I don't want to just you right. know, castigate that community because it happens every religious community that I've been connected to. What are ways that we could do that better um, mm. for, for people like me who's a pastor? And yeah. as I'm saying, okay, we have you know, people of color who are great leaders who have giftings that bless our church. We do want them to use their gifts. We want them to be on stage, but I don't want to just use them for their skin and not respect the essence or the image of God that's inside of them. Absolutely. Well, I think in my in my experience, there's there's two routes to take um, to navigate that. Uh, I think one route is to just acknowledge we are culturally different. We preach different. We sing different. We just have different cultural ways of communicating and engaging. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And since my black brothers and sisters, Hispanic, Korean, whatever, since they engage each other in these unique cultural ways and I function in this cultural way, maybe the goal is not for us to try to merge. Maybe the goal is for us to work alongside each other. Hey, how can we serve your church, your community? How can we work together? Maybe, you know, we have a Sunday where we all congregate together and experience each other's unique style of worship. Maybe there's some projects that you're working on that we can walk with you in to accomplish in your distinct communities. Um, That is one way that I've seen be effective. It's just realizing, hey, we're not saying we don't want to integrate. We're just saying that we recognize we're distinctly different, but we need to work together as a body in certain ways. The other way I've seen effective is, is much more tedious and, and it requires a lot of dying to self. And that way is being what I would call transcultural is saying, Hey, we're going to mix this whole pot up. And we're just going to be the body and man, we're going to explore and experiment all the different vantage points, perspectives. We're going to ask questions of each other. Our elder board is going to be diverse and we're going to, how should we sing this Sunday and next Sunday? And what do you think about this and how should we navigate this? And there's, there's gotta be a lot of deference, a lot of saying, I submit to you. What do you think? Well, I submit to you. What do you think? And that that's, you know the harder route, but um, but both of them are are effective. It, it seems like the first one. It's well, the, the normal option is, hey, we'll have black people on stage and we'll do white church, like that. That seems and right from my experience, that seems to be the like the easiest one is we'll just yeah. have. I'm not saying the person is a token, but functionally there is some degree of tokenism there. The, yeah. the second option, which you you described, which is we're going to work side by side, we're going to respect differences. Okay, like I think. 
that's a very sober, realistic expectation that we can all work with. The third one, w- w- the, the, the deference, the dying to self one, mm-hmm. I, we need some great examples of that because that's not going to happen very easily. And right. um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's the idea of each, each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. I mean, that's mm-hmm. Philippians 2. That's having, it, having in you the mind of Christ. Yeah. Um, but man, that's a lot of work. It that is. is a lot of work. It hmm. is. Absolutely. Hmm. I, I think you, you, you know, and I think we have some examples in scripture. Of course, we see Peter and, or even James. James was speaking to a primarily Jewish church. And when you read it, sometimes people read it and they say, is he talking to the whole body? He's talking to Jews. Like people are trying to wrestle with it. He's talking to mainly Jewish believers. And then you have Peter who was used to talking to mostly Jews as well. Um, and then you have Paul and Paul's like, well, I'm, I'm going over here to Asia. I'm going over here to Galatia. I'm going over here to Rome. And Paul is saying, hey, Peter, I know what you're used to. But uh, the dividing wall is torn down. Everyone has access to this now. And so you're going to have to approach this from a different vantage point. You're going to have to to recognize that I know you, there's this Jewishness mixed up in this, but Jews are not special because of being sons of Abraham. Uh, as far as God is concerned, they're special because God has chosen them. And now God has opened up that to everyone. And he decides that everyone can be chosen by him. And so I, I think that Paul was a great example of somebody navigating his Jewish background and culture in all these foreign territories and having to integrate. And it was a lot of dying to self. I mean, the man was shipwrecked and, you know, did a lot of dying to self in order to make yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. His life was not that comfortable for him, for sure. <laughs> right. But then again, Jesus wasn't either. So maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, so these are hard conversations. They're not easy to do. Uh, they're very painful. Um, and I know for you, like you started having these conversations and it wasn't you know, easy for you. As someone who's been in the spotlight, you've had a lot of people calling you on both sides, calling you out. Uh, mm. Christina Cleveland, who's been on the podcast before, um, referred to you as a mascot for white evangelicals. Um, I, I, that couldn't have felt good. I, I, I've always assumed, like, you have a line in your last album from the song um, Come and Get Me where you say something about if you want uh, a religious puppet, you're going to have to hang me or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that, a, like, that's got to be a response to Christina, Absolutely. right? Okay, good. Well, uh, All right. It, yes. Not like, <laughs> not like against her. It was affirming no, 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 no. what she said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, okay. So I, I always kind of assumed, okay. But when that album came out, I remember listening to Facts and I was listening to that and I was like, it seems like this guy uh, who's, you know, work I, I followed, I appreciated. It, it seemed like there was a turn with that, with that album, with that, f- for me, it was that track. I don't know if it's fair to say the entire, you know, album uh, hinged on that track. But for you, yeah. like, did you sense, like, I, I'm turning, I'm talking about things differently now with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I had just, I had just been at my wits end. And I think I, I couldn't make sense of anything. I couldn't make sense of the dissension and the division. And I knew that I was not crazy, but I was made to believe I was crazy. I knew that I was seeing the effects of racism in society, but it was like, every time I brought it up, the church would shut me down and say, you know, my white brothers and sisters would shut me down and and say, I'm creating division. And I was like, what? 
it's it's already here. What am I creating? I'm confused. And um, and man, I just had to do some self uh, evaluation. And I have some incredible people just speak into my life and give me resources and tools to affirm some things that I had, you know, had a suspicion that were true. Um, that the world is bigger, that the faith is bigger than just what I'm seeing in America. And um, and once I had that ammunition, I was free. You know, I was just mm. free. It, it, it did not go over well, uh, <laughs> but I was free. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely didn't. Uh, well, I mean, maybe in the kingdom of God, it went over well, but in America, sure. it didn't It didn't always go over well. I, I feel like you've said this before, but you had this uh, very poignant tweet on the 4th of July. I think it was back in uh, 2016. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, it seemed like a pretty straightforward tweet that I thought, oh, well, I I mean, that's a powerful point that we need to be reminded of. Not everyone saw it that way. And uh, in the book, you you mentioned one word that saying the word whiteness, that Mm. also was a hot button. When when you send that tweet or when you use the uh, the terminology of whiteness, did you know that you're stepping into a hornet's nest or is it something that took you by surprise? No idea. I, every time it's always like, wait, what? You just, that's the pro, that's the, the, I won't say the problem, but that is the, that, that, that those are the perils of pioneering. Those are the perils of, of stepping out is you never know what kind of trap you've just stepped mm-hmm. into. Um, and, and I, and it's happened my entire career. You know, it's happened in smaller ways. I feel like God prepared me for that moment. It's kind of like, you know, you can't rap and love God, you know, that's, Mm. that doesn't go together. And I'm like, of course it does. I do it. And you know what I mean? (laughs) What are you talking about? And so it's like, those are just small little people. You can't rap with people who are not Christians. Well, I did. I just did it. (laughs) You can, you know, and then it's like, you can't say that there's racism in the church. And it's like, but there is. Mm So, um, whiteness specifically, you know, these terms like whiteness or, you know, even that, that particular tweet you mentioned, um, I didn't know that there would be that type of a response. And you just learn, you learn like, okay, when I say this term, you think I mean this, but I don't, I mean this. And there's a tension. There's a tension. I think you first say, well, maybe I should educate them, but then you scratch your head and you say, these people have spent all this time studying theology. It's not like they're ignorant. They can go educate themselves if they really wanted to. They just no, don't want to. Um, so, so then what I, what I began to do is just say, Hey, here's a link, here's a book and, you know, do your due diligence. And I'm going to continue on the path that I feel like God has put me on. Yeah. So Austin Channing Brown had a line, uh, I guess it was in her book, or maybe she said it before where it's not black people's jobs to educate white people. And, as a pastor, I found myself knowing that the most impactful form of communication from my experience is autobiography. Someone sharing their story is more impactful. And we've seen that in conversations at Race in My Church and many other churches, but then it puts the onus on black people to carry the weight of being black in a white space. And mm-hmm. so th- there's that tension. But then as you're saying, for you, it's, hey, I can send you these links. I can send you these books. You can go educate yourself. You've obviously shown the propensity to be able to learn deep theological things. Um, why don't you let your deep theology to impact your conversation on race and be educated on that? Where do you find yourself in that tension of, do I have to educate people, or can I just send them a link and let them do it on their own? Um, it just depends on the day. 
You know, I mean, there's some days where I don't mind. I don't mind having a conversation and breaking some stuff down and unpacking things. Um, it's not my responsibility to, you know, I don't take it as like, oh, let me do this. It's my, it's my, it's my duty in order to get your approval or to get you to understand. Um, but I, I engage the curious and I, I ignore the critics. You know, some people don't want to learn. They just want to be critical. Um, some people are genuinely curious and they're like, hey, how, what do I, and it depends on my mood. If, if, if I'm tired and I'm just overwhelmed with life, you know, kids, I'll, I, I keep a couple links, uh, you know, saved on deck, keep a couple books. Ready to go. Photos, ready to like go. What, just here you what, go. Which, which ones are, uh, do you have that are always ready to go? Um, I have a, a photograph of a, a, a list of books and I'll just tweet or, or text part people that photograph. And it's got like books, it's like Austin Channing Brown's book. It's yeah. got like, you know, uh, a, a new Jim Crow or, um, yeah. you know, different, different. It's like a whole list of categories of books that people can read. Um, and I'll just shoot them that. But if I'm in, it depends on my mood. If I'm in the mood, um, I can engage in a conversation and, you know, and, and we can unpack some things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, One of the things I had to imagine is you have these people who play the role of like, you want this older person to like, um, I think your language was that you have like this approval of men thing that, that you're trying to work through and that these, these people, especially evangelical reform leaders, all of a sudden who play that role now are criticizing you. And you have this line in the book that you realized that the most important question wasn't if white evangelicals care about black bodies, but if God cares about black bodies. And it's almost like you're pivoting from the approval I need from from these men now gets to be replaced by the father of of everyone. Is that what's yeah, happening? Absolutely, and that, and that's and that's what you have to do. You've got to come to a place. You know, the thing that has carried me is knowing that no matter what, the tomb is empty, and yeah. so the tomb was empty when the during a trail of tears. The tomb was empty. Uh, you know, during slavery, the tomb is empty today. And so whether or not you acknowledge that reality or not, I know this and this is the lens through which I'm going to travel. And if the tomb is empty, God cares. If God defeated death, he defeated racism. And I'm going to carry on as if I know that is a reality um, and not find myself trying to, you know, get the approval of folks and say, well, do you care? Do you care? Do you care? Listen, you should. God does. And and that's kind of where I had to land my plane is like, does God approve? If God approves, I'm good. I'm moving forward. Yeah. You've got the line at the end of the book that says, um, life's turning point comes when you're able to admit, God, I don't like where I am, but you're with me and that's enough. Right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that's spot on for so many of us. Like that's in a pandemic, in a, in a time of, uh, when, you know, people are at their wits end, like that's the, the message that we have. That's the only message we have. God is with us yeah. and that's going to make it okay. Man, uh, it's it, the, the way it's translated, uh, in, in Psalm 23 is, um, you know, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death. And, um, and it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I don't think tr- shadow is in, is in the, the Hebrew translation, but in our English translation, it says the shadow of death. And what it reminds me of is that even in the shadow, even for a shadow to be cast, there has to be light. So there's always light there uh, in the midst of the shadows because there's no shadow without the light. So I'm, I I know he's there. He's the shade in my right hand and I can trust um, that, that even in the storm, he's, he's by my side. That's good. That's good. You, You make this observation that the American churches are Pauline dependent faith 
more so than being a Jesus-dependent faith, which I think is really spot on. That's been my experience as well. And I think one of the things that does is it makes people think that the gospel is more about getting you to heaven when you die than bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Man. And so do you feel like that has led to our lack of, or, or maybe putting on the back burner the idea of caring about justice right here and right now? Absolutely. I think, to me, I see Christianity in four quadrants. Um, I see a quadrant of kind of humble excellence. I see a quadrant of, of transformation. I see a quadrant of distinction. And I see a quadrant of, of, of cultural uh, relevance. Mm-hmm. And the the distinction and the transformation quadrants typically are the louder voices in Christianity. And they say, hey, if you're not transforming everything, if you're not distinct, then you're not a real Christian. Mm-hmm. And that's more the Pauline, you know, yep. idea is and and the relevance and the humble excellence are, you know, I'm relevant. I, I understand the culture. I understand what's going on. I can navigate it. And I'm creating things that they can connect with in order to see a picture of God. And I am doing things in humble excellence. I'm not loud. I'm, I'm, I'm kind. I'm good. I'm excellent at what I'm doing and I'm helping the community thrive. Well, they're all supposed to work together, but typically they, they're, at each other's throats. And Jesus was all of them. He was distinct. He was transformative. He was humble and excellent. And he was relevant for the time and the place. And I think that's where we, where we'll begin to thrive. Yeah. It it seems that it's far easier to just to talk about, okay, Jesus forgives me my sin. So I can go to heaven when I die. Like that's a Mm -hmm. far, but I I wonder who's really going to get crucified for that message. Like who's going to die for that? Right. Exactly. Yeah. The message of, (laughs) Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, that will get you killed. The message that the kingdom of God is where our true allegiance is, not to America, that will get you killed. And That will get you killed. Yeah, maybe that's why we move over and uh, just talk about heaven. Anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway. Well, okay. Um, so uh, a couple, I guess it was a couple months ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, you, there was a, you know, you're on stage with the guy from Chick-fil-A and Louis Giglio, and there's the incident, which I have no interest in, you know, relitigating that. I think confessions have been made and apologies have been made and all that. I think people understand that story. Uh, but one of the things that, that that story brought up to me is I got on the phone with a big brother of mine who's a, a black preacher who has uh, helped me with a lot of things. And I said, hey, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're torn between the black community, which you know is hurt by what was said, and then love and compassion for a white guy who said something that puts you kind of torn between, do I support my white friend or do I disrespect the black community that I'm in? And he said, uh, all the time, uh, multiple times that has happened to me. What can, uh, is it just because white people like me are not prepared in those conversations? Is it because we haven't done our homework? From your experience, how can people like me keep putting people like you and my other uh, other black friends in situations like that? Yeah, you. I mean, that's it. Spot on is is making sure that you do your homework, making sure that you have a genuine intent to learn, listen, um, and not to lead in those type of conversations. Um, the problem for a lot of leaders, white leaders in particular, is that they're so good in all these other areas and that they think they can just do the cliff notes 
on issues of, of race and justice and and jump out there in front of the world using the cliff notes. And it's like, no, that's not going to work. You're going to have to pause and do the work um, educating yourself and being educated by others and then living it out so that you have actual orthopraxy to your orthodoxy yep. in what you're what you're learning. Yeah, it's easier to have orthodoxy on this one. Like, I can say the right things. Right. You know, I, I might be able to get the uh, Cliff's Notes down, and as long as I don't get a Q&A and I can just stick to my script, I can be okay. But yeah. when you actually have the practice of it, like, that's when it becomes far more complicated. Absolutely. But, it gets embedded. Yeah, yeah but, but like you're saying, like, if you have some level of proficiency that enables you to be on a stage, you have the ability to kind of mask some things because you have mm-hmm. communication skills or whatever, Um and that makes it difficult to say, I'm going to stop being the teacher, but instead I'm going to be the student. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit and learn and listen. And uh, mm-hmm. that's not always easy. It's not. That's, that's part of the, the humility. That's, that's part of uh, being a lifelong learner, I think. To be an authority, you have to submit to an authority. And, and so if you want to be an authority on the law, you've got to submit to the law and learn the law. You want to be an authority on... You know, any craft, you've got to submit to someone who is an authority on it so that you can now become an authority in that particular area. One of the things that uh, you talk about, the idea of that you do have to be a student, you do have to listen, you do, you do have to learn. You found yourself uh, in a situation where a lot of the, the guys who were closest to you, um, they kind of became yes men or you reduced them to that, not that they wanted to be that. How do you ensure that you have people close to you that aren't just becoming yes men, but that can be your teachers, that can be your guides when you found yourself where you don't need to be? Mm. Um, I I think uh, integration. You've got to integration has got to become a part of our lives. Um, I think we suffer when we don't implement full on integration. And when I say that, I mean, um, oftentimes we don't integrate people into the, to, the, the crevices of our world. Um, we bring them in at a high level, especially leaders, because leaders feel like they have too much to lose. Um, so you've got to bring them in on the most intricate levels. If, if someone is saying, hey, you know, can you come out and, and do this show? We'll pay you X amount. And, you know, you're like, man, I want more than that you know, just bringing your friends in. Hey man, I want more than that. Am I being greedy? It's just, I don't know. It's something simple, but now they're in that process. Um, do your friends know your salary? Do they know your struggles? Do they know your temptations? Um, you know, how integrated are you all so that when, when things come up, um, you can speak to it right away instead of like, Oh shoot, we're not that close to where I could tell them this. But I have to give them this high level version of it, which if they're your friends, they're not going anywhere. You know, they're not going anywhere. They're going to walk with you through whatever storm you bring up, you know, whatever that may be. Um, They're not going anywhere. So bring them in on the front end so you don't have to wrestle with bringing them in after you crash and burn. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's good. Uh, You 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 say in the book that uh, that. And here's the quote that I'm addicted to substances and alcohol. And for many of us, you know, you've been this voice, you've been a source of encouragement. And for some of us, that's going to be really unsettling to hear because we think, oh, you know, that's Lecrae. He is, he's a writer. He's a, he's a rapper. He's, he's a speaker. How can he have these sort of 
issues, which th- th- that's supposed to be us normal people issues, not people like him. Mm. How do you, how are you preparing to have that conversation with your your fans and your followers about something that maybe they're not ready to hear? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> you know what we have to remember is that leaders are not heroes. You know, leaders are very dependent people, and so dependency is 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 admitting I need God every day. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason why I'm in the position to lead is because I'm depending on God consistently. Um, it's not because I'm good. It's not because, you know, and a lot of times we use Paul's words about uh, qualification or being disqualified from the race. Mm-hmm. And we'll lump that into kind of every aspect of life and say, oh, well, I'm disqualified. You're you're not disqualified from uh, you know, being a voice for God because of your sin. If that's the case, then we're all disqualified. Um, but you know, if you're going to walk in hypocrisy, if you're going to walk in a, in a state that that will not acknowledge that you need dependency, well, then yeah, it's time to take a seat. It's time to sit down and and um, you know, then the Bible talks about you being restored. You know what I mean? Uh, so restoration is a part of that journey, but. Moses is not a hero. You know, there's no one heralded more uh, in Jewish culture than Moses, um, but he's not a hero. He is a dependent man. You know, Moses had an anger problem. He struck the rock and didn't make it into the promised land. David's not a hero. You know, David is a murderer and an adulterer. um, And, you know, those are the realities that we have to face. These are dependent individuals. And I think that's what I would want anybody to know is man, trust the person who's willing to tell you um, where they have failed, because that that's a person who's dependent. Be wary of the person who's who says they have it all together or they don't have any struggles. That's the person you need to be wary of. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. I think that's the kind of leader that we can all connect to as well, because none of us are perfect. Whether we t- tell our friends or we tell the people that we're close to or, or not, like we all have these struggles. And to have someone who's willing to put it out there in the forefront, I think that's that's the kind of leader that we all need. So much respect for that. I appreciate it. The book uh, is entitled, which you just forced out of very nicely there, I Am Restored. Uh, it'll be out in October, and I highly recommend everyone go get a copy. So Lecrae, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, it's an honor. I appreciate you. It was yes, great. Sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.